Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. The title of today's show is The Synthesis Effect. And I'd like to start off here with one of my favorite quotes of all time. And, and this one is by Confucius. And the reason why I'm quoting this is because it happens to be the first quote in the book uh, written by today's guest, Dr. John McGrail. But the quote is this by Confucius, the famous um, ancient Chinese philosopher. He said something like this, If there is righteousness in the heart there will be beauty in the character. If there is beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the home. If there be harmony in the home, there will be order in the nation. If there be order in the nation, there will be peace in the world. And this has always attracted me because it all begins with righteousness in the heart. We can't have peace in the world without righteousness in the heart. One of the problems we have in our modern culture, in my opinion, is that we have diverse fields of thought which tend to be in conflict with each other, and these, in general, are science, philosophy, and religion. Three fields, three perspectives. It's as if we have three different worlds. We know there's only one world. There must be a way to synthesize these different fields not only theoretically, but to bring that synthesis down to earth, make it real in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, as I mentioned, my guest today is Dr. John McGrail, who's joining us from Los Angeles. He is a clinical hypnotherapist, self-improvement expert, and spiritual teacher. His company, A Better You, Inc., serves a worldwide clientele. His writings have been and are frequently featured in numerous media outlets, including Cosmopolitan, Experience Life, The New York Daily News, Red Book, Brain World Magazine, and a whole lot of other publications. He's also appeared on numerous national radio and TV programs, both in the U.S. and abroad. He has a Bachelor's of Science from Cornell, where he received his certificate in clinical hypnotherapy. And he also has a Ph.D. in clinical hypnotherapy from Breyer State University. And last, he's the author of a new book entitled The Synthesis Effect, Your Direct Path to Personal Power and Transformation. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, how are you, Phil? I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much. Well, I was telling uh, Dr. McGrail before the show what a great job he did on his book, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit. But before we get into it, we're going to set the table here because most people, including me, are fascinated by, hip by hypnosis. 
and you do this for a living now you're not just a hypnotherapist you do a lot of other things but let's first have you define what hypnotherapy is okay I'd, I'd be happy to hypnosis is a natural state of consciousness that we all enter every day every single one of us with a normal brain experiences severally, uh, several naturally hypnotic moments every day when we watch a good movie and we feel emotions or read a good book or daydream on the freeway and we suddenly find that we, you know, we don't know where our exit is. Those are all naturally occurring hypnotic moments. So there's nothing mysterious in reality about the state of consciousness we call hypnosis. Uh, but the reason it's such a powerful tool or can be for facilitating change and transformation in people is that it creates a very open and receptive state of mind. Uh, some special things happen when we enter that state of consciousness, and it is that receptivity. We become very childlike, actually, and as you know, little kids will believe whatever we tell them, and if you tell a three-year-old two plus two is five, uh, he or she will say, oh, great. And so um, the subconscious part of the mind really never ages past about three. That's where most of our behaviors and habits and patterns, good and bad, positive and negative, arise from. And the theory is that hypnosis allows us to, to communicate with that three-year-old inside of our mind and help it unlearn what's not working and then relearn the new patterns, the new beliefs, the new attitudes, the values, or whatever it is that we'd like to, to create. So hypnotherapy is using the natural state of consciousness we call hypnosis to help people create change and transformation in their life, and it helps do it quickly and profoundly when applied correctly. Well, one of the things that I think is noteworthy about your definition is that you call uh, hypnosis a natural state of consciousness because so many of us view uh, hypnotism as some kind of stage act. And I, and I know you've, you've talked about this and you mentioned it in your book, but, but I think it is, it's, it's uh, enlightening to know that it's something natural. And it seems as if the way you're defining it, it has to do with focusing intention or focusing our natural consciousness about, upon something. Does that have something to do with that? or? or yeah, what? it really does. And, and you bring up two really good points. So first of all, it does create a very focused and receptive state of mind. And, you know, it is the, the reason that hypnosis gets such a bad rap is because it is used, uh, it, because it's a natural state of consciousness, you can use it any way you want. And, you know, people uh, go to Las Vegas or a convention and they see a stage hypnotist perform. They call a group of people into the, uh, up from the audience. The first thing the hypnotist says is, who wants to play? Who wants to be part of the show? And a bunch of hands will go up because there are people that naturally want to do it. Now, in that group of people, there are going to be enough that comprise about 2% of the population at large that have the ability to go into a very deep state of hypnotic trance, if you will. We call it hypnotic sleep, but you're never asleep, very, very quickly. And a trained stage hypnotist can find those people. So you see a bunch of people go up, and then, then they send someone, some back. And a few more people come up, and some go back and he or she is testing them. And then they end up with the 10 or 12 or however many people are going to be in the show. Those people, number one, want to be in the show. Number two, are naturally very suggestible, and the hypnotist knows that. So when the hypnotist taps them on the shoulder and says, deep sleep, they go right into trance because their brains happen to be that facile. There's nothing more to it. And the difference between 
hypnosis as an entertaining medium and hypnosis as a tool for change is simply the way it's applied. And yes, you're right. It creates a very, uh, 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 a very focused and receptive state of mind. We are open to suggestions. We are open to new ideas. And human beings are naturally resistant in our conscious state. We are naturally resistant to change. We will cling to the familiar, even if the familiar is painful, with tenacity. And hypnosis allows us to bypass that resistance. One of the problems that I think we have as a culture, and this is not something new, but it's something that perhaps has gotten worse as the amount of distractions and the multitasking that we all undergo has increased, and that is we tend to have these conditioning beliefs or these blocks in our heads or these, or these, uh, or these beliefs that we don't question. And one thing that appeals to me about the way you approach uh, hypnosis and, and, and meditation as well, and we'll talk about it, is it seems to me that, that, that we're breaking through those, those ingrained belief structures and we're, and, we're, and we're finding our true selves in some way. Um, is that correct? Is there, is there something to hypnosis that breaks, breaks free of, this, of these conditioning beliefs? Well... It doesn't break free the conditioned beliefs, but it gives us the state of mind we need to break free okay. of them. And you're absolutely right. We are, we are all literally programmed. That's just how the human mind works. It starts at a very early age, and by the time we're about eight years old, we are pretty much programmed. And I, I hate to use that word because people start thinking that you know, they have no control, and that's right. not true. But our subconscious ingrained patterns are literally programmed, and, and the computer... Our, our brain works a lot like a computer, and so once we're programmed with these patterns, we will repeat them over and over and over again. The, the term we use in uh, hypnotherapy and neurophysiology is called homeostasis. Right. That is the mind's natural tendency to keep things constant. Even when constant is painful, that's just how the mind works. You brought up another really interesting point, and that is that we are, you know, we almost celebrate multitasking in today's <laughs> society. Yeah. And, and studies have proven that it is a very, very inefficient way to go about doing the business of life. The human brain is evolutionarily designed to do one thing at a time. If you think about our ancestors, and, you know, 300,000 years sounds like a long time, but from an evolutionary per point of view, it's no time at all. And if our ancestors were multitasking, while they were out hunting for food, they would have ended up being food instead of procuring yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Well, I mean, one way to look at multitasking and it really is an evil of modern society. I mean, Beethoven uh, could never have written his symphonies if he was multitasking. Or Shakespeare, or Einstein, all the all the great creators, the artists, the musicians, the scientists. You can't achieve your best performance if you're multitasking. It's that it's that simple in my book. But uh, and I I tell you I think we need more more studies, more uh, folks like you instructing all of us that multitasking is not a good thing. So so let's let's do something here, which is first of all you talk about the synthesis effect. And that's a, that's the title of your book. Now, what is it that you are synthesizing? 
Okay, great question. I love that question. The reason I call the process synthesis is, is from the definition of the word. And, and essentially, uh, if you go to Webster's or even any online dictionary or, or the old-fashioned book, people still use them, uh, the word synthesis implies taking a variety of different disparate ingredients and combining them to create a stronger whole. And that concept really resonated with me when I, when I was thinking about the techniques that I've developed in my clinical practice and particularly doing my research when I was, when I was getting my doctorate. And, I, and synthesis, the process, um, is, is about that. So we take uh, conscious cognitive energies and exercises people, you know, what, that people are used to. Um, we work with the subconscious mind through hypnosis and a variety of other tools. And we, this process is very spiritual in its nature, and of course it's got nothing to do with religion. Um, but I use a lot of the techniques from some of the ancient cultures, meditation, etc., visualization. And, and bringing these techniques, methods, and traditions together in synthesis creates a stronger person. We create the change and the growth and the transformation that a person is seeking. And, and it can be something very simple, like a nail-biting habit, which I actually talked about in my book, to a complete transformation uh, and like a, 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 a mental and emotional makeover. And the beauty of what I do is that I work with all of that. And it, that, that's, so the synthesis effect is the empowered person, it's the person that's been through the process and now feels good, they're happy, they like the way their life is working, they like the way they're thinking, they've got rid of the bad habit or the phobia or the fear or the, the tendency to attract bad relationships, whatever it is that was holding them back and now they're living life the way they want to, and of course their life is fun, which, as you know from reading the book, is number one rule in my method. Life is supposed to be fun, which means enjoyable, that you feel good about it, you like getting up in the morning, you look forward to your day, you like the people you're hanging out with, you like your relationships. Most importantly, you like yourself, and that is a lot of fun. It seems like it begins with getting in touch with your true purpose or your true self. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to express this. This, you know, hypnosis, as as you mentioned, being a natural state of consciousness, it it allows you to to get in to get in touch with maybe the child's mind or your creative essence or your inner energy. And at that state of mind, it seems to me, we have much more power, much more freedom to follow our own path, to do what we really want to do. Because I, I think that, uh, again, our, our modern culture drives us away from our true essence in so many ways. You know, the, the classic desire to earn a living. To, or to do what your parents want you to do. I mean, I, I think you gave that one story uh, in your book about uh, the fellow that wanted to be a cook, but his parents wanted him to be a, a lawyer, a doctor, or something. Yeah. Uh, and and why don't you why don't you give us an example of how your methods have helped somebody? Well, yeah, that's a perfect example. Uh, this this young man came to me uh, needing help to pass, quote-unquote, the bar exam. He had taken the bar exam. The California bar exam is one of the toughest ones in the country. Uh, and he, he had done really well in law school, great grades, and was top of his class, and yet was continually failing the bar exam. So, ostensibly, that's why he came to see me. 
And what I found out very early on in our work together was that he really didn't want to be an attorney. What he wanted to be, what his passion was, his passion was a chef. And of course, in his family, as it turned out, all the men for generations had been lawyers. And so he was expected to toe the line and be a lawyer, but he didn't want to be. And so what he was doing subconsciously was sabotaging himself by failing the bar because that was his last thing. That was the last chance he had to, to avoid doing what he didn't want to do. And what happened, once we figured that out, and he really was honest with himself. So as you said, you get in touch with your true self. Once he was honest with himself that his values, that his desires and passions were not necessarily in line with what mom and dad thought he should be, and once we figured, you know, once we got him in, emboldened, if you will, to, to let them know that he had no intention of practicing law, uh, we did have him get ready and pass the bar exam just because. Hmm. Uh, so there were no questions about it. And then he went to culinary school, and he is now an extremely successful uh, chef and restaurant owner. <laughs> well, I think I think I think that's a great example. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Dr. John McRail from L.A., the author of the new book, The Synthesis Effect: Your Direct Path to Personal Power and Transformation. I'd like to ask you what led you down this down your path. To being the author of this book and to being a clinical hypnotherapist? Well, the short story is that I was like that young man uh, who went to law school. I, I had a variety of, of positions and careers, and I, I was successful at pretty much everything I did, but they were all, you know, conventional. And I grew up in an, in an environment where one was expected to go to school and get a degree and get a good job and get married and settle down with a house and a picket fence and a two and a half kids that are two cars <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, sort yeah. of that American dream. Uh, and I, I was a very, very unhappy camper. That's the only way I can describe it. I was addicted to cigarettes. I was extremely intense type A personality, uh, somewhat compulsive and, and, and rigid and had a, a marriage that just didn't work very well. I mean, the way I describe myself, who would want to be around me? But we were two nice people that didn't belong together. But we got married for the wrong reasons, you know, because we, it was the thing to do. So the short of it was I had a, uh, an epiphany, uh, a moment of self-discovery, and, and began to explore and accept my own sensitivity towards spirituality and the fact that I could live my life the way I wanted to live it. And I learned how not to care what other people think. And that, that study and evolution is what eventually led me to go to school for hypnotherapy um, and then, you know, consequently get my Ph.D. and, and, and write the book and create synthesis and uh, help people empower their lives. And, and it's just been a joy. I have not worked a day in my life since I started that 13 years ago, or it's almost 14 now. The, one of the things that, that comes across in your book that I'd like to ask you about is is you you cover a broad spectrum of fields in your book. Your book is not really about hypnosis. No, and it's, not at and, all. And what got you into studying quantum theory and what what made you connect the the quantum world 
to hypnosis? What connection is there? Well, there's a huge connection in that the quantum, well, first of all, the, the, the field of quantum physics, and there's actually a new branch of that, I think it's called Quariella physics or something along those lines, uh, is, is breaking enormous ground in integrating and, and, or I should say reintegrating the concept of science and spirituality, which um, for the last five or six hundred years have been uh, separated. I call it the great separation in the book. And, you know, there, there are very logical reasons why it occurred, but as I began to study my own spirituality, and I, I have always been fascinated, for whatever reason, by the Native cultures and philosophies, particularly the Native Americans and the Australian Aborigines, who were very spiritual in the way they went about doing their business and the way they went about living, and they believed that everything and everybody was connected spiritually and that there was a spirit that moves through all things. And that just really resonated with me as I started reading this. I just always had a natural interest in it. And then someone, a friend, and I can't remember who it was, told me about a book called The Holographic Universe, which was written in the late 80s by, uh, I, can't really, I can't think of his name. Michael now, Talbert. I, Michael Talbot, right. exactly. And I picked up that book, and it was like someone had turned on a light, because here were scientists, and, and I should tell the audience that I was educated as a scientist. My studies at Cornell were uh, in anatomy and physiology, so I'm as Western-based as it gets as far as needing scientific proof before I'm going to believe anything. And so here was this book that was presenting the scientific evidence behind the fact that this thing we call spirit, that your thoughts actually have energy, that they have an effect on your reality. And that's really where it took off. And then from then on, I was just voracious. Uh, another great, uh, one of my favorites and, and a good friend is Lynn McTaggart, who has sort of... Um, taken on the mission of, of finding the science behind spirituality, and some of her books are just great. We, we've had some tremendous conversations over the years. Yeah, and I want to make sure that folks understand, you know, we, we talk about quantum theory a lot in this show, and and it's not exactly the, the easiest topic to summarize, but essentially quantum theory is so important, in my view, because it is talking about what we know to be reality and so the scientists in the early uh, 20th century concluded that at the base of reality is not something we call a thing or a separate particle that it takes consciousness in some way to bring the particle into existence and if you really get into it uh, there's some who interpret quantum theory to conclude that there really isn't anything out there without consciousness and that's what makes it such an exciting field, and that's what makes it the connection to spirituality, is that there's a lot in common with, with the findings of spirituality, the oneness, the, the, the underlying uh, consciousness. It, it, there's a lot of connections, and I do think, John, you know, the exciting thing to me about quantum theory is that I think the connection between science and spirituality has been made and that will never be broken. I think that's the key thing. Oh, I agree, and and it is uh, it is the part of science that is exploring the nature of matter and energy. And another way to think about quantum theory that makes it a little bit more understandable, because as you as you are you know you say so correctly when you, when you read some of the stuff, 
it's mind-boggling. You can't, it's really hard to get our, our to wrap our brains around it because we're so used to a solid, concrete, material world that looks like a big machine, which is how Western science generally considers the world. But the other thing that I love about quantum theory is that scientists using hard Western scientific rigor in laboratories, experimentation, I'll believe it when I see it thinking, are proving that the universe is not a big machine the way it looks. It is really an infinite field of energy, and everything that exists is made of the same energy, is connected in one way or another. And so suddenly the bridge between consciousness, for instance, and creating a reality is not so hard to grasp. Your thoughts are energy. We are energy. Everything is energy. And it's all the same energy. It's just expressed in a variety of different ways. And the cool part about it is that because it's all the same stuff, it's interchangeable. So, for instance, I, there's some exper experimentation where they, you know, scientists can take an electron, a piece of electricity, and turn it into a photon, which is a particle of light. They can take the photon and turn it into a particle of radiation, and that particle of radiation can be transformed back into a particle of electricity because it's all the same stuff. It just takes different forms. And so that makes it a little bit more grasp graspable, and it also explains so much about you know, what's going on. Why are some people, like, naturally lucky? Everything just goes their way. Well, if you, if you dig down a little bit, you find out that a lot of it has to do with the way they think. And the way you think has an effect on what you attract. You know, we know that this thing called the law of attraction is real. Energy flows along lines of attraction. We, we even talk about it organically. Birds of a feather flock together. Um, and that's true. People uh, who are like you are the people that you are attracted to, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a fascinating field. And I, I agree with you completely that we are reintegrating science and spirit. It got split up about five or 600 years ago, and for very good reason. It, they didn't do it on purpose. Uh, they just forgot something, and they forgot that spirit and religion are different. And now it's coming back together, and it really ties it all into a nice package. Um, and when you start manipulating it, on purpose, with purpose, which is what synthesis helps people do, you can change your life. You can create pretty much whatever you want. And it's, it seems like it's really been a boon for the personal transformation field because one of the criticisms I think that would be made about the personal transformation field is that you could think all the happy, positive thoughts you want, but you're just humoring, humoring yourself because we're really just robots destined for for uh, death and, and uh, the grave. And the quantum theory approach and, and, the, and the spirituality interconnection there starts making personal transformation real. And, my, and I, I really think that this whole field is, is slowly seeping into our consciousness, speaking of consciousness. I mean, I think even though there's been all sorts of books on this topic, it's still not quite there. I mean, what do you think? I mean, in, in, your, in your career, are you seeing a, a, a gradual evolution in consciousness, a change in acceptance of, of, what, of what you do? Yes, and I, I think the operative word is gradual, and I agree with you 100%. It's not there yet, but it will be. I think it has to be if we are truly... You know, I just heard uh, 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 Neil Donald Walsh speak about a week ago. Uh, he did a commencement exercise at the University of Santa Monica, which confers master's degrees in spiritual psychology. And, you know, the one thing that we have never done 
uh, we ask questions in science, we ask questions in economics, we ask questions in, in a variety of our endeavors, but when it comes to the fundamental, uh, fundamental assumptions about our existence and, you know, the, the, the powers uh, uh, that we could call divine, God, if you want, we don't ask the questions. Well, now we're starting to ask the questions. And when you question some of the basic assumptions that are thousands of years old, that we are separate, that there is this entity that is superior to us, pushing buttons like a big puppeteer, well, they don't, they don't stand up very well to the science. And so, yeah, it's a gradual transformation, Philip, but it is happening. And I'm getting more and more people coming into my clinic and when I do lectures and workshops that are so thirsty for this knowledge because once you... Uh, w- once you take it in and start applying it, and it's not hard. That's the cool part. It's not hard. But once you do it with consistency, it's amazing how your life begins to change. And, you know, you said something really interesting. Uh, think about what you want, 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 boom, you're going to get it. Um, they leave out something in that formula, and that's you got to do something, too. Right. And one of the things that is one of the keys of my synthesis process is that we have to focus our thoughts with a lot of, intensity on what we want, but we also have to act and make choices that take us down the path. And when you combine those two, it's astounding. Well, that is, I think, the piece that's missing from a lot of the personal transformation uh, work out there. More folks are saying it, but it's not just having a vision and then sitting back and and having it happen to yourself. It's actually going through the hard work to reach the vision. And, you know, there's that saying, and I, I, I saw that you're a golfer as well. I remember one of the, one of the things about Jack Nicholas, and this is, shows that even professional golfers practice visualization. But one of his tips was before he hit a shot, he would visualize the ball landing softly on a green. And, but, of course, he sure took a lot of concrete action to reach that goal. The ball didn't go there by itself, and 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 I I do think that this is a a fundamental part of putting this transformation field together and making it real. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Dr. John McGrail, the author of the new book, The Synthesis Effect: Your Direct Path to Personal Power and Transformation. And I'd like to move for a second here talk about another really interesting part of your work which has to do with what you call the quantum reality equation now this is this this sounds something that that is original for you and and it puts together maybe a couple things we've talked about but why don't you describe for the listener what the quantum reality equation is Okay, I'd be, I'd be happy to. What it is, is it is, a, it is a simplified graphic depiction that helps people understand how we create our own reality. When we talk about the quantum theory and quantum physics, the, the bottom line, if we, want to get, if we can get there, is that scientists are proving, and again, we have to emphasize this, it is science. This is not conjecture. It is not voodoo. It is not some woo-woo stuff. There is hard science behind this that our thoughts and our energies and the way we focus our energy affects our reality. And we create our own reality. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like life is happening to us. And, of course, when I have clients come into my clinic, 
they have a fear or a phobia or a habit or limiting beliefs, which is you know probably the majority of the work I do, or anxiety, stress, which is the majority of the work I do, it feels like life is happening to us. And the quantum reality equation is something I came up with that helps explain in a very simple and, and graphic, it's visual, uh, way how our energies interact to create our reality and why or partly why we get stuck in that reality and why it's so hard to change that reality. And I came up with it as a way to help my clinical clients and my workshop and uh, seminar students understand what it was about. Uh, because I found early on, and this was you know, part of the whole genesis of my synthesis process, is that if I can get a client to understand how and why they are the way they are and how and why they're stuck, because it seems like you can't get out. I tried and tried and tried to do this, and nothing works. And, you know, when people get to me, it's usually in desperation. And so what I found early on is that if I can create understanding, here's why you are the way you are. Here's why you think the way you think. Here's why you behave. And here's why you're stuck and how you got that way. And now here are the tools that we can use to get it unstuck and to create the new flow. And that's really what the quantum reality equation is about. It's just a simple way of explaining what is a very difficult and sometimes uber-technical concept to folks. Um, and, and, and it works really well. I've had great success with it over, year, over the years, and it's one of the cornerstone models of the synthesis process. Create understanding of how and why, give a set of tools and processes to undo what's not working and establish what is, and then a method through which to use the tools, and that's, that's what synthesis is all about. One of the things about quantum theory that I think is really important to, to point out is that in, in one way, it is really true that we are energetic beings, and we're living in an energetic world. You know, even Einstein said that E equals MC, MC squared which means that if you, if, you, if you square the speed of light, you multiply by mass, that equals energy, that what we are is really energy, even under the strict in, uh, scientific interpretation. And, and if this is true, then we necessarily mold our own reality. It has to be true. But what we don't know, John, and this is, I think, the, one of the big challenges that we have is that we don't know to what extent we really can do it. And there's this other problem, which is that there's 7 billion other people who, are, who might be molding their own reality. So we all can't have our own reality. So, so what do we do about that? The fact that we have, to, you know, to say we create our own reality forgets that there's a lot of other people living in the same reality. So, Right. Um, and that was one of Neil Vincent Walsh's primary questions. How can 7.2 billion or however many people there are on the planet, all who say they want the same thing, which is a good life, high quality of life, happiness, abundance, peace, uh, tranquility, how can 7 billion people who've been trying to do this for thousands of years not be able to do it? And we're supposedly an advanced species. And there are a lot of reasons that will go way beyond what we could talk about tonight, and maybe we can do another show on that sometime. But, you know, the bottom line is um, at some level 
you, you, the individual, and I, the individual, and all the folks out there have to take responsibility for how our life unfolds. Okay, it's not the government's job, it's not mom and dad's job, it's not your brother and sister's job, it's not your husband's job to create your happiness. You came into this life for whatever reason, and here you are, and only when you take responsibility for how your life unfolds, for the events, not, not necessarily the events that are beyond your control, but how you respond to those events, because, yeah, there's 7 billion people, they all have their own agendas, and things are going to happen that are beyond your control, but how you respond to those events, those um, experiences is always within your control. When you take that responsibility for creating the reality you want and you really, really apply the tools and the techniques and it starts unfolding, something really cool and very miraculous happens. And what that something is is that you begin to attract people of like mind. And you find what I call in my book your tribe, that group of people that have similar values, that group of people who think like you. And it doesn't take a lot this may sound crazy, but I've got so you know I've got case histories in the book. It doesn't take a lot, just a little bit of practice, to get to a place where you're living virtually free of suffering, virtually free. It's never perfect. Right. And if enough of us just start doing that, we are going to create a groundswell of energy. I mean, we can create mass hysteria. Why can't we create mass peace? We're the same people. Uh, you know, you remember 9-11, I'm sure. I mean, who doesn't? Right, right. Um, there's a great article, and I wish I could remember the journal, but so many people on the planet were so focused on that one single event and the, and the horrific tragedy that it was, and there was so much energy focused on that one thing that it literally changed the magnetic field of the planet, and right. they have a spectroscope of it. And it was simply the thoughts of billions of people all focused on the same thing at the same time. Literally, they changed the magnetic field of the planet. That's got to tell you something. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Dean I think Dean Radin, uh, among others, uh, I think he's the leader in doing those kind of uh, mass tests or measurements of focused attention from the people around the world. But one of th one of the things that I I think is sort of obvious is that this way of thinking this make your own reality uh, get in touch with your inner self connect with your your true being uh, and and everything else along these lines it leads to moral conduct because without moral conduct and without the recognition that we share the world we can never make a better world, and and I think that that's sort of why that's why that's that's why I started with Confucius, and I know that you know in your own book you use the same quote, a different paraphrasing of it, mm -hmm. but 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 I think that's that's the piece of the puzzle that we're missing, because we cannot individually transform our world, we can't do it ourselves, no, we can't do I it agree. one by one. You know, the thing is this, and what you just said, I, th I think it hits the nail on the head. Uh, in fact, this is the working title of my next book, or one of them. We are all one. And the problem that we have on this planet is that for whatever reason, a long time ago, we began to think of ourselves as separate and different. And then there were these assumptions that were laid down. And, of course, now, here we are, thousands of years later, and every, all the groups are saying, listen, there's only one way, 
and it's our way, and it's in our book, not yours. Your book doesn't count, only our book. So, you know, and as long as we have that feeling of separateness and difference and, like, our way is the way, and we are all one, uh, yeah, you're right. We're going to have a, a long road to hope. But I think that eventually, and hopefully more quickly than not, we're going to start asking those questions, questioning those basic assumptions of separateness, and we're going to start realizing that we are all one, and it's not just one book, <laughs> right. uh, my book, not yours. It's right. everybody. We're all the same. And, and uh, uh, God, if you want to use that word, is, there, you know, there aren't different ones. There's only one, and, and that's another thing I love about quantum theory, is that they're proving that this concept of an infinite, omnipresent intelligence exists infinite omnipresent intelligence as far as i'm concerned that's what we call god right but it's everywhere and it, and it's available to anyone all of us we are all one right so you're right we got to st- we got to get there and hopefully sooner rather than later before we blow ourselves up or the planet <laughs> not to sound gloomy and doomy but yeah we're a mess in that area well when you consider that usually what happens when people re- reach a higher state of consciousness they have a greater appreciation for the world and they're kinder to each other and so my own little hope and dream is that as we sort of climb this mountain of of awareness or of increased consciousness that it becomes a natural process where we become better people because i really don't think that waving a magic wand or beating people over the head, or making them cite the rosary fifteen times—no offense, <laughs> no uh, offense, no offense—is going to make is going to make somebody a better person. I mean, uh, it has to, it has to be uh, indigenous, organic, with that person. And so let's let's talk a little bit about the connection between uh, hypnosis and meditation, because. One of the things that I really liked about your book and that I would I would really recommend to the listener is how practical you approach the concept of meditation. And and so why don't you why don't you tell us what tips you would give to somebody who who's never meditated, who mm-hmm. thinks it's some kind of, you know, hippie era uh yoga far out thing that they don't that they're not interested in they'd rather watch football on TV or something but but what kind of what kind of practical advice would you give the meditation doubters Wow well first of all um, I like to think this is a, a very interesting question and I'm glad you asked it and I, I want to see if I can make it make sense in, in, in fairly briefly. I like to think of our, our the human being as as you know as we as an energy machine as we talked about we have physical energy which is the energy of our body our vehicle our body takes us through this life we have our emotional energy which is me Philip or me John or me whoever's out there I and then we have this other energy that is a little bit harder to put our fingers around we call it consciousness or our soul our essence and whether we like it or not again the science is there we are the essence of consciousness in a physical body that takes on this identity. Now, meditation and hypnosis are essentially identical states of consciousness. So let's go back to hypnosis first of all. What does it do? It creates a very open, receptive, quiet, and focused state of mind. There's nothing more to it. Hypnosis has been used for thousands of years as a tool for transformation. 
because it creates that state of mind. And in that state of mind, a human being is much more amenable to unlearning things that aren't working and relearning things that do. In fact, like for instance, pain. 85% of our perception of pain is emotional. Well, we can control a lot of that. Meditation has been around since the dawn of mankind because it too creates a quiet, contemplative state of mind in which we can be in touch with the essence of ourselves, our souls, if you will. Um, and so hypnosis has been used for uh, changing what we would call uh, acute conditions, like getting over a habit or a fear, short-term. And meditation is more of a sy systemic practice that is designed to be used long-term to create peace of mind, energetic balance, and a feeling of well-being. And when it is used consistently, it does just that. Consistency, of course, is the key. Now, if you haven't meditated before, what it really requires is nothing more than sitting comfortably and relaxing and letting your mind do what it's going to do and then gradually learning how to focus it. I, I use a very simple exercise of counting breaths, and that is, it's, it's incredibly effective. And I don't think I've had a client in the last 13 years that has come back to me and say, uh, and said anything but, wow, that breathing exercise you gave me is amazing. I feel fantastic. That is the beginning of a meditative practice. There's nothing more to it. But the, the other part here, Phil, that's really cool is that we all know that we have these intuitive gut feelings. We have hunches about stuff that just happens. You know, I, think, I feel like someone's going to call me and the phone rings, those kinds of things. And what a lot of people in Western culture, and when I say Western culture, I mean modern technology-driven culture. It's not just us, the West. It's all over the world now. We have forgotten that every one of us has that sixth sense of intuition, if you will. And when you take on a consistent meditative practice, what you're really doing is learning how to tune into that intuition in a very powerful way. Um, I'm sure you remember the, uh, the big tsunami in the Indonesian uh, archipelago a few years ago, 2005 right. or six, I think it was. Thousands of people were killed and companion animals. And the interesting thing about that was that uh, a few weeks after the event, there was an article in the L.A. Times, and I'm sure it was Reuters, so it was probably in a lot of the big papers around the country. But it was a little article tucked in Section 1, and it was a picture of a tribesman looking up at a helicopter that had been taken from a helicopter. And he's pointing a spear as if to say, get away from us. We don't want you modern people near us. And the essence of the article was the fact that all the tribal people in the area, all the indigenous people who still live naturally in balance with the earth, they all got to higher ground because they knew it was coming. Right. And, and so the cool part about this article, and this will, I'll tie this back up to meditation, is that the, the author, his name was Roy, said, these people, the natives, have a sixth sense that we don't have. They can feel the depth of the water with their paddles when they row their canoes out to sea. They have this intuitive ability to do things that we can't. Well, we're all the same people. We're the same species. We have that same intuitive sixth sense, but we have lost contact with it through the aegis of technology and, quote-unquote, modern Western science and all the other stuff. Well, when you take on a, a, a practice of consistent meditation, quieting the mind, getting still for a while, unplugging, if you will, it's such a wonderful feeling, first of all. But when you do it consistently, one of the things that happens is that you naturally get back in touch with that intuitive sixth sense, and you can develop it to an incredible degree with just a little bit of practice. And it's like a guide, an inner guide that will never, ever steer you wrong because it's coming from your consciousness, your essence, your soul. And we could say that's the part of you that's connected to God and the God in you. 
And once you get good at it and learn how to trust it, it's astounding how much trouble you keep yourself out of. <laughs> yeah. You know how you say, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. I knew yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Well, you stop doing that because your intuitive sixth sense tells you, I call it inner vision because that's how it was taught to me. Don't say that. Don't go there. Don't do it. And then you listen and you don't get into trouble. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Dr. John McGrail about the way that any, uh, that any of us can meditate. Now, I want to point out two things I really liked about your, your meditation tips. Number one, you, you gave the 21 breath tip, which is nice and quantitative. Anybody could remember 21. And, and a lot of folks say, well, you breathe in and out, you focus on the breath, but I like the 21 because it's something any of us could do. The other thing I really liked was that you pointed out something that is so obvious but, but clarified a lot of things for me, and that is, you know, sit in a position that is comfortable but not laying down because a lot of people like me, when you lay down, you start meditating, you fall asleep. Exactly. And, and, and you pointed out, <laughs> if you fall asleep, it means you're tired and you need a nap. It doesn't right. Mean, that was, it's okay. That, yeah, it's okay. You need a nap. Now, pick some other time to meditate because, because, because you're not in the right frame of mind. So, but it's, it's so, and this is, this is what I think is, is, is so important and interesting here, folks. And that is, all of this stuff has, has to have a practical use to it. Otherwise, we're never going to carry it out. It's, it's, it's not going to do us much good. And, and what I think John is doing and has done in his book and his practice is that he's bringing a lot of these big concepts and sort of bringing them down to earth so, so that we could benefit from them. Now, we, we need to touch upon something that I think is, again, something important from your experience what what do you think is the the major ailment in the, in the modern mind what what problem are you seeing that we have as a culture that your skill set can address well i think we are very very energetically unbalanced as a culture we are there are a couple things going on. First of all, we're obsessed with materialism. We are uh, obsessed with egoism. And, you know, uh, the way Western culture is, it's like be number one, beat everybody else, be the best, and that's sort of ingrained into us. And um, because we're so imbalanced spiritually and we're so consumed with the world of, of physicality, if you will, and, you know, how much do I own, how much do I make, where do I live, what do I drive, what do I wear, and that's all great. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the millions of studies have proven that, you know, after about a certain amount of money, it's not very much. Uh, money doesn't buy happiness. It's a nice tool. So I, that's one of the things. I just think we're very energetically imbalanced because we have been separated from our, our inner voice, our inner vision, our spirit for quite a long time now, about five centuries since modern science was, was developed. And what I'm seeing because of that uh, is, is, first of all, a thirst, but I think that is one of the underlying causes for a lot of the issues. We're, we are also, in Western society, singularly talented at focusing on what I call 
the dark side of the contrast equation. And what I mean by that is very simple. We, we evaluate our entire existence according to one concept, and only one, contrast. Do I feel good or bad, happy or sad? Is it pain or pleasure, love or hate, peace or war, yin or yang? That is the essence of human existence, contrast. And we've become singularly talented at focusing on the dark side of that equation, lack, negativity, insufficiency. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not sexy enough. Uh, uh, we don't have enough. There's, you know, if you turn on the news, you don't hear very much good news. They tell us all about all the bad stuff that's happening in the world, and there is a lot of it. But what they don't tell us is that for the most part of the 7.2 billion or however many people we are, at any given moment in time, if you look at the whole planet, we're okay. Most right. of us are just fine. We don't hear that. We hear the other side. So what I see in my clients and in my students is this, this horrible anxiety and stress and what I call disconnection. They feel terrible about themselves. They, they're not happy. They're not living a very empowered life. Uh, and they're, you know, they're trying to live up to others' expectations, as we talked about earlier, and not their own values. And once you get them balanced, once they start uh, flipping the coin, and instead of focusing on the lack side of the contrast equation, they start flipping the coin and focus on the other side, which is sufficiency, happiness, joy, the other side of the same coin. Once you start focusing your energy on that, well, guess what? You create more of that. So I'm seeing a lot of anxiety, a lot of hyper-stressed people, and particularly L.A., maybe because it's a big city. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I would say 10 years ago, 85% of my caseload were people that had habits or fears or things that, you know, that one would think about with sort of conventional hypnotherapy. And, and it, hypnosis has been used for 7,000 years as a healing tool. Anything that lasts that long lasts that long for a reason, because it works. Today, 85% of my clinical cases are people with anxiety. They just have this overriding dread, this fear, and there's no particular cause for it. What ultimately is what causes it is a feeling of being out of control. Well, well, you also mentioned uh, the concept of separateness and isolation, yes. which I think, which I think it goes hand in hand with what you're saying, and and you know the separateness is a function, as you point out, of this old Newtonian worldview, where we're all sort of the way I like to put it in my own book, we're sort of like uh, like robots sliding down slotted. Uh, lanes on a on a track we all have mm -hmm. our own little track and, and nothing will ever make us come together and we're used to the us and the them we're used to you know two opponents duking it out going to the separate corners the republican versus the democrat the wall street journal versus the washington post or the new york times and and it's it becomes you know there's nothing wrong with competition but at the end of the day it's got to be for the fun of it it can't it can't it can't define who you are or what we are and i th i think that we've taken that competitiveness too too seriously it's and and i do i do agree with you completely that it's that it's driven by the media that needs to see the fight you know everybody you know they want to see the battle they want to see people duke it out and and that it makes it makes for good tv to a to an extent but that, that cannot define the way we approach other people. It's not I agree. Healthy. And the concept of, of feeling isolated and alone and having nowhere to turn and this concept of being imbalanced um, work together 
to create what I call I call a disconnection because I, I was tired of the the term that you know sort of trite now disease you know disease yeah. but that's really what it is right and when you balance yourself and anybody can anybody I want to say that over and over again everybody out there you have everything you need to create this feeling of peace and balance I promise you you may not know how to do it, but there's help out there. And, you know, my book is just one of many that might offer that help or, or me or people like me that have just gone through the same stuff and figured it out and, and gotten help from others. It's there. And yet balance, balance, balance is the key. Probably my clients hear that word almost more than any other. Balance, balance, balance. So competition, sure, it's great, but it has to be balanced with compassion. And individualism, Okay, fine. You should be who you want to be. Be your own individual, but it also has to be balanced with a concept of community. And you know, the studies are just the, the studies that have been that have been conducted over the concept of you know isolation versus community. They are there's a plethora, millions of them, it seems. And every single time, people with a sense of community and a sense of common purpose and a sense of service and a sense of balance are happier. They're more prosperous. They're more successful and they live better lives. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Well, there's no doubt that it's going to take a deep spiritual evolution for us to get over this this uh, hurdle of materialism, or, or us, for, for us to take that down. And that, I think, is where the hope comes in, because as, as this new worldview, whether we call it the quantum worldview or the spiritual worldview. In my own book, I call it the real dream worldview. We, there's all sorts, of, all sorts of titles for it, but as it takes hold, hopefully, of what we are, this transformation is going to be more automatic. Now, now, one of the things that you also do that I'd like to have you touch upon here at the, at the conclusion, because it's so important, is that quantum theory and this whole concept of being energetic beings is not just sort of a fancy, mystical uh, approach to the world, but it also has relevance in modern medicine. And I thought that it was, it was very interesting the way you point out that, that modern medicine, the way we, we, we treat people today, this, this, uh, this from the out to the inside, is really an old way of approaching disease, or it might, or or it soon might be an old way of approaching disease. Absolutely, and again, it goes back to the ancient cultures and philosophies of the world uh, that really treated the human being more holistically. Allopathic medicine, which is the common term we use for Western medicine, is miraculous, and there's no question about the fact that what we can do with technology what we can do to save lives, what we can do to repair a damaged body is, is enormous. But what it leaves out, because it's so mechanical, and they treat the body and the mind as separate entities, and, you know, we've proven that that's really, you know, Descartes uh, and his buddies started that in the 1500s, dualism, the mind and body is separate. We now know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, and again, quantum science gives us that evidence that the mind and body are inextricably linked and connected. We are a mind living in a body, um, not a body with a mind. And now, the, again, the studies and the science behind the concept of the power of the mind to both heal and create illness, it goes both ways, because energy is just energy, is enormous. 
And we have this whole thing called the placebo effect, which is where they'll take a group of people and they'll give them a medication, and they'll take another group of people where they'll give them a sugar pill. And the people that get the sugar pill have the same therapeutic effect as the people who got the medication. And that is simply through the power of the mind, because they believe they're getting the medication. They have the, the effect of the medication. That's the power of the mind, nothing more. And, and modern medicine is now beginning more and more rapidly to incorporate this concept of mind and body in medicine so that it's not just about treating symptoms, it's about identifying causes and using all of our miraculous technology along with the miraculous power of the mind itself to create healing and better health. And I'm very excited about that because we're, we're really starting to see that more and more and more. And, and you know, I agree with you, it's going to take time. But it's through people like you who have these shows and, and, and the people out there who are listening, who are curious, uh, who want to take a look at this. It's not going to take an awful lot of time if we can get a groundswell going. And even if, this is what I say to my clients, even if you don't live to see that, shouldn't you, as the individual, have a great life? Why not? Who said life is supposed to be suffering? Where did that come from? So... Even if you just have a great life and you help your family have a great life, if it's only that small group of people, that little tribe, that's okay. You only get this one life this time. So enjoy it. Make it fun. And yeah. everybody can. Yeah, and I like, to, I like to think that the trains left the station on, on this movement. And I think we're of the same mind that, that there is a revolution. We could be undergoing the revolution right now. It could be, it could be a, a slow-moving one. But, but with, with the breakthroughs in quantum theory and that big, complicated field of slowly seeping into our, our mindset, and that is quantum theory. It's been 100 years now, almost. Yeah. But, but, but with it slowly seeping in, you'd think that maybe in the next 100 years it will, it will, be, it will, it will be fully ingrained. But, but once again, uh, we've, we've somehow come to the end of the conversation, and it seems like in many ways we just started. Exactly. But, 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 at the, but I'd like you to uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your websites. I think you have two or so, and why don't you tell them quickly about those and how they could learn more about what you're doing. Okay, thank you so very much, and, and uh, it does sound like we it feel like we just started the conversation, so, uh, you know, let's do it again sometime and keep this going. It's, it's been delightful, but uh, for those who are interested, uh, first of all, the title of the, my book is The Synthesis Effect, and you can find it online at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. It, it's had its first run in the stores. We're waiting for the second printing, um, and it's being translated into a variety of languages. just got launched in mainland China. But The Synthesis Effect is my book. And my website, uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about me, is pretty simple, uh, com. And if you're more interested in the hypnotherapy part of things, my clinical practice has a website. It's very simple, Hypnotherapy Los Angeles, all one word, all spelled out, hypnotherapylosangeles.com. And that's got a lot of great information on it. And for anybody that wants to contact me uh, who's curious, I, I attempt to answer all emails and phone calls personally as I can. If I get a bunch that are on, on you know, uh, dealing with one subject, I'll probably put that in a blog. But I, I hope people reach out. I'm, I'm easily reachable, and I'll be you know, doing more in seminars and whatnot around the country. And, and I am so uh, 
grateful and appreciative of you having me on today. Thank you so much. It's been it's just been a joy. Well, well, thanks a lot for for joining us today. And I want to end with something that that's from that's from John's book that I can, cannot agree with more. And that is a simple point that life is supposed to be fun. And the reason we go through all this, at least I do, is to understand uh, ourselves and the world better so that we could get in tune with what we really want to do and really want to be. And most of that is to have fun with this wonderful life that we're leading. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 